The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Friday, February 11th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told Americans to get out of Ukraine today and warned that a Russian invasion could come at any time. Any time? Yes, even during these quadrennial games. We are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. I will not comment on the details of our intelligence information, but I do want to be clear. It could begin during the Olympics, uh, despite a lot of speculation uh, that it would only happen after the Olympics. Wait, during the, not the Olympics, the Olympics? Yes, even the Olympics. But surely not during the women's 4x6K biathlon. Yes, even during, okay, okay. But certainly not during this weekend's women's monobob heats. The monobob is what they call the one-woman bobsled or bobsleigh, depending on your continent. But yeah, what Sullivan is saying is the invasion could occur during the ice dancing or the curling or the four-man or two-woman or even the monobob. Yeah, these people are monsters. The thing is, sure, it might come. And it seems like the Biden administration is certainly not downplaying that possibility. They seem what would normally be called saber-rattling, but it is an odd dynamic. Saber-rattling is when you kind of want a war or threaten, we're going to hit you back if you start a war. They're almost olive branch virtue signaling, because I think what's going on here is that the Biden administration wants credit either way if it comes or it doesn't. So first of all, the, the Ukrainians themselves, they do not think an invasion is coming. I don't mean just leadership, though I do mean leadership. Vladimir Zelensky, he exhibits sang-froid wherever he goes, and the country seems pretty prepared. I was just emailing with a listener in Ukraine today. They're not leaving. They're prepared. They're not quivering. They're girding themselves, let's say. Now let's talk about Putin. It is in Putin's interest to at least bluff an invasion, but it's also in the United States' interest to act as if an invasion is going to come. Because this way, if it does come, the administration comes off as resolute on top of things, unsurprised. And if it doesn't come, our administration can say, well, you know, maybe we had something to do with that. We got Putin to blink. And if it doesn't come, the administration can say, well, this was a real crisis averted. You're welcome. All iterations of if it'll come or if it won't and how the United States should react or predict, I think all the game theory adds up to whatever the United States really believes, what they want to signal is that this very much is in the air and could be coming soon. But here's the question. What does it mean for the actual possibility of an invasion happening? It doesn't really mean anything. Sorry, but I just explained a way why we can't take signals from anyone engaged in this possible invasion. I told you, you got to take the Ukrainians with a grain of salt. You got to understand where the Americans are coming from. We all know what Putin wants to put out there in the world, but they're all signaling different things. Yes, maybe, and you better worry about it. There's reason to doubt all of them. So all this means is you can't take your cues from anyone who's interacting or acting on the public stage. 
Only Putin knows if it'll happen. And as Biden said, Biden doesn't really know if Putin really knows. My advice, keep your head down and keep hugging your knees, which is not advice about Ukraine, actually. It is for the monobob. On the show today, it's an Antan twig. I answer emails and tweets and notions in the zeitgeist, all about the gist. And we shall award our first lobstar of this here Antan twig. But first, this Sunday is Super Bowl Livy LVI. And even though the Rams will be playing the Bengals, what people are really talking about, and rightly so, is a lawsuit brought by the former coach of the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores says that teams engaged in sham interviews. They had to interview him simply because he was a person of color. They had no interest, NFL teams didn't, of expanding the diversity in their coaching ranks. If you look at the statistics about who's coaching in a league where 70% of the players are African-Americans, it's hard to doubt the charge underlying Brian Flores' lawsuit. We will talk to former Green Bay executive Andrew Brandt about the Rooney Rule and diversifying the coaching ranks of the NFL. of NFL players are African-American, less than 10% of the coaches, the head coaches are black, meaning two out of 32. It was one out of 32 before the Texans hired Lovey Smith earlier this week. This is the shame of the league, which has been backsliding for years, and it's now been brought to a head by a lawsuit filed by Brian Flores. Flores was the coach of the Miami Dolphins. He had two winning seasons. He is widely respected as actually an excellent coach. His firing was quite a surprise, but the real shock was that he filed suit in a move that could kill his career. Joining me now is Andrew Brandt. He's executive director of the Morad Center for the Study of Sports Law at Villanova Law School. For a decade, he was an executive with the Green Bay Packers. To a large extent, he's been in the room where it happens, meaning hiring decisions. Andrew, thanks for joining us on The Gist. Michael, always a pleasure to talk to you. It's been a while. Enjoy, always enjoy our conversation. I do too. This is going to be a good one because I've been casting. I understand the issue and I think many of my listeners, even if they don't study sports, understand that this is way too low of a representation. And perhaps a lot of them have heard of the Rooney Rule, but I want to get to what do we do from here? Before I do that, how shocking was it to you that this lawsuit would be filed in the first place? My initial reactions were, wow, okay, So Brian Flores, at the time, still up for two or three NFL jobs, brings this explosive case. And of course, everyone's talked about some of the specifics. We can talk about with the Bill Belichick text to the wrong person, with the way the Broncos handled his interview, and the explosive charge against the Dolphins owner for bribery. But my, my, my real takeaway is that In teaching sports law, you see so many what I call pioneers, whether it's Kurt Flood or John Mackey or even Jackie Robinson, that sort of do what they do with personal sacrifice for the betterment of those coming behind them. Brian Flores, even though I had some hope that maybe he might get hired last week, I don't think he'll coach in the NFL again because of this. 
So my thought was, okay, this guy is making some sacrifice for some change. And whatever happens with this lawsuit, it's not going to be judged by damages to Brian Flores. It's not going to be judged by what we find out about Bill of Belichick texts. It's going to be judged by what the NFL does in the future, whether that's one year, two years, five years from now. What uh, adjustments or revamping, I guess, the Rooney Rule has over the years and where we go at the top of these organizations on the leadership side. I think that's going to be where we look back on this suit that started at the end of January 2022 and see what Brian Flores' lawsuit accomplished down the road. Well, you mentioned a raft of names, heroes, uh, not necessarily for what they did on the field, though Jackie Robinson was one, but what they did to agitate for change off it. Kurt Flood, Andy Messersmith, you could put Rick Barry in there. But as I think of them, the difference between them and Flores, just in terms of the law, maybe Kurt Flood, he certainly faced the slings and arrows and it was a long shot, but all of those guys had a chance to win. And as I look at the case, I don't think, but you're the law professor, I don't think Flores does. I think that's a good point. And once you, now we sort of get into the legalese of the case where at the end of the day, it's two things. It's a, it's a class action suit, which has to be certified by the judge. And what that means is you would think there'd be more coming and it's an invitation to those similarly aggrieved. And we've heard some things in the media about maybe Marvin Lewis, the former coach of the Bengals, maybe Hugh Jackson, the former coach of the Browns. Maybe there'll be people popping up with similar grievances that were not head coaches, that were in front offices. So we'll wait to see on that. It's got to pass a motion to dismiss, which I think it will because the league's highest ranking black executive, Troy Vincent, has even admitted that they're not doing well in this area. So it may survive that. But then it's a civil rights case. So then you got to look at what's the precedent. Supreme Court 2020, a case basically said, you, to prove one of these, you, it's the but-for test. So but-for Brian Flores' race, he would have been hired as the coach of XYZ. That's a tough case. So now we're back to the specifics, right, Michael? So now we're back to the Bill Belichick situation, the Denver Broncos situation, the Giants and the Broncos. So you know what's going to happen. All the Giants executives will be deposed or get on the stand and say, hey, we hired Brian Daybole for these 10 reasons, none of which were race. And the Broncos get on the stand and say, hey, we hired Vic Fangio for 10 reasons, none of which were race. And then the charge against the Dolphins owner, where's the evidence? I didn't say that. And it's he said, he said. So people know what the Rooney rule is, which is essentially whenever you do your hiring, you have to at least bring one African-American candidate into the room. Was the NFL telling itself, because you look at a few years ago, I mean, the NFL was up to seven black head coaches. Were they telling themselves, oh, this is enough. This is working up until Flores. Was that the general consensus within NFL ownership and, and the league office? Yeah, let's unpack a little because I was with the Packers, as you mentioned, in the early 2000s when this sort of came about. Dan Rooney, the owner of this late owner of the Steelers, we were all kind of told, you know, hey, if we have a coaching search, make sure one of our candidates is a minority. And actually, we did have one in the mid-2000s. We hired a guy named Mike McCarthy. We went through a long search. And in our list was Tim Lewis, I think, was defensive coordinator, African-American from the Giants. We had Ron Rivera, Hispanic. And it was just kind of like, okay. 
And then it was expanded to GMs, and and now it's more it's expanded to coordinators. But I guess the feeling was okay. But as you said, it kind of led to a number that was acceptable to the public, to everyone else. Six, seven head coaches that were black, and it it went the other way in recent years. The real issue tends to be to me is enforcement. You know, we can all talk, we can all say it's a great idea but how do you enforce it? And that gets to the issue of sham interviews. The problem, I don't know if there's a good way to handle this, Michael, because here's the the issue that happens so often. An owner gets locked in on getting that guy. Five years ago, right? Mark Davis is locked in on getting John Gruden. And any other interview that's not John Gruden, white, black, green is going to be a sham interview. And then on the other side of it, I was friends with Bill Polian, the former general manager of the Colts, and I remember him telling me, it wasn't even a discussion about race or the Rooney rule, but I saw him once and he said, you know what? We were looking for a coach. Tampa Bay just fired a guy named Tony Dungy, and I knew in my heart that he was going to be our coach. And any other interview, white, green, yellow, was not going to be a real interview. So it happened on the other role reversal there. And Tony Dungy, one of the most successful black coaches in NFL history. And by the way, the two ownership groups or the two owners that you mentioned in terms of hiring black coaches actually have great records. Mike Tomlin, coach of the Steelers for, you know, well over a decade. And not only was Dungy um, the head coach, but they've had other black head coaches, Jim Caldwell as well. But I guess one of the frictions is that when you have an NFL team, they don't work for the commissioner. It's the other way around. So it's really weird. I I can't think of a similar circumstance where the enforcers of a rule are actually serve at the pleasure of those who they're trying to enforce the rule on. And so it makes sense that you'd have carrots, right? If the NFL commissioner is talking to essentially his clients, the owners, hey, we want to increase black coaching. They all at least publicly agree. So we'll give you some extra draft picks or some extra incentives if you do have a good record on hiring black coaches. That I suppose they could agree to. It's the other part. We're going to punish you for the biggest personnel decisions. How would it, why would owners, what's the dynamic that would make owners ever agree to that? I mean, this is Jim Rooney, the son of Dan Rooney, telling me this. The only way it works is hit him where it hurts. So in the John Gruden situation, you research it, you find out everything else was a sham interview, you dock the Oakland, now Las Vegas Raiders draft picks. That'll hit them. You dock the Jacksonville Jaguars draft picks because fines tend not to work. You bring up the key question, would ownership approve that? Or are they going to stay with this systematic incentive-based program? And how is there going to be incentives to hire these coaches? I mean, it's a real problem. And Roger Goodell, of course, asked about this, his press conference uh, during the Super Bowl and kind of a vague, non-responsive answer. What you're essentially saying here is the owner of a business has to hire as his CEO, or if you want to use the analogy with a GM, a COO, one of those two positions, maybe we'd have to have a quota on to have that be uh, a diverse candidate. That's hard. I know of no business where that 
could go on, where you would not just say you have to diversify your workforce, but you literally have to hire as CEO a minority candidate. And that's tough. You know, some of the things in the Flores lawsuit that aren't talked about are systematic efforts that they could hopefully impose to solve this sham interview problem. What they suggest or ask for existing black executives or black general managers from other teams sitting in interviews with minority candidates and having accountability reports. So if you interview a black candidate, they want to see what you like, what you didn't like, what do you say, what do you say helpful, what do you say. And of course, much more networking at the lower levels, which to, the, to be fair, the NFL has done. And even when I was with the league, you know, between 1999 and 2009, we would have gatherings for young coaches and front office people with an emphasis on minority to hobnob with club presidents and maybe even owners at league meetings. So there is that sort of ground up that needs to happen. And I think the statistics of 2032, that's a snapshot at the top. But again, to be fair, I think the scouting ranks, the lower coaching ranks do have much greater minority representation than the head coach ranks. But there is one position, and it's the most sought-after position. It's the offensive coordinator. Offense is so important in football, and a lot of these young coordinators, we're seeing a couple in the Super Bowl, certainly McVay in um, Los Angeles, it was seen as this young, genius offensive coordinator. And that description, that appellation does not get applied to black coaches, the young offensive genius. And I think as I look at the coaches, maybe it's kind of true that there are, maybe it's because young coach, young black coaches haven't been given the chance, but it's probably due to a lot of other factors, that if we're so, or if NFL owners are so um, bowled over by young offensive geniuses, there are many more white ones than black ones. Or am I seeing it wrong? You know, maybe I'm just buying into a, uh, a perception that's not real. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's true. And I think Look at the coordinate. Look at the head coaches now, who just got named, taking aside the mixed race new hire with the Dolphins. We have Mike Tomlin defense. We have Lovey Smith in Houston defense. It tends to be a model where the coaches that advance, uh, that are African American, come from the defensive side. Now, I don't know exactly why. But your statistics will be proven out. It seems like there's an offensive track that black coaches don't seem to get on where they're more likely to be on the defensive side. Maybe if you look at, you know, what's at the makeup of the team players on offense and defense, that may have something to do with it. But it's an interesting thing to notice, as you said. And I'm not sure how we remedy this. I mean, again, it's bringing in more candidates at the lower levels, ground up, grassroots to get to the higher levels. But, you know, what we haven't mentioned the the four the five letter word here, Mike, that people run away from. But do we want to get to the actual using of the word quota where the owners say collectively, we don't know who's doing it. But we better have five black head coaches in the league in 2022 or whatever. So, you know, that's another alternative to get to the quota part. 
that seems that seems unlikely to me. I mean, just think about there are four coaching vacancies, say, in an offseason, and you're at a situation of there are currently four black coaches in the NFL, and you're the last guy to hire. I mean, you you might be saying to yourself, well, I'm not Joe Biden. I didn't pledge on a black woman being appointed to this job. I want to hire who I want to hire. Uh, I don't... I. I also sense societally, even the concept of quotas is something that people are running away from. The NFL fan is no more liberal than society as a whole. I think that's a tough lift, but I, I'm, I'm like you. I wonder what the other solutions short of quotas are. You know, I think the bigger picture here, and uh, uh, we all know this, even non-NFL fans, the NFL is full of drama. So this, this Brian Flores has had some legs for about a week and a half, but I think deep down the NFL owners know they'll be on to new dramas, they'll be the Super Bowl, they'll be free agency, they'll be the combine, they'll be the draft, and, you know, sometime later this year they'll put out something about we're going to do this better, we're going to do this better, and, you know, uh, that's what they in 345 Park Avenue, I think they know that. Well, they're banking on that. Does the Kaepernick example, might that have anything to say about activism or keeping this issue in the news? You know, it's pretty clear that Kaepernick raised a lot of awareness but killed his career. I think a lot of people have compared Flores again and where we started this with sort of that kind of model, the Kaepernick model setting out to do what's right, setting out for the greater good at the sacrifice of his personal career. You, like you said, never's a long time, but never seems to be applicable to Colin Kaepernick. They recognize the issues he was raising six years ago surfaced after George Floyd. They kind of recognize that, but they're not giving him a, jo a job. Um, are we going to see the re issues recognized by Brian Flores be... I don't know, amplified and acted on in two, three years, but not giving him a job. We'll see. Andrew Brand is the former Packers executive, current executive director of the Morad Center at Villanova Law School. Andrew Brandt has a newsletter at andrew-brandt.com, B-R-A-N-D-T, and a podcast on the business of sports. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Michael. And now the spiel. And not just a spiel. It is, in fact, an antwintig. An antwintig. Sometimes I say antantwig. You know, that's what linguists inform us. It used to be pronounced antantwig. But now it's definitely antwintig. So just regional dialects. What is this antwintig, you ask? Well, just as the word fortnite comes from the Old English for 14, antwintig comes from 21 and and 20 and it's a 21 day period that we here at the gist use to reflect correct settle scores revisit revise expand and then of course there is the lobstar the lobstar the coveted award that shall now take immediate corporeal form so the big screw up the really two really big screw ups one was, I said that Leonardo da Vinci said, and now it moves, or and yet it moves, Latin, eper si muove. And it wasn't Leonardo, it was Galileo.
Galileo. Galileo Figaro. And now I know. I refer to the possibility of Germany invading Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, it's a possibility, right? Belgium can take on Uganda. It would be, it's far-fetched. I, of course, meant that Russia would be invading the Seychelles. No, Ukraine. Here's another comment that we got. And this was from a listener who heard me talking about the popularity of football. It's good to be talking about this on the eve of the great game. And I did note that of the top 30 or 40 TV shows that were the most watched last year, all but three were football. I think a couple Biden speeches and maybe the Equalizer, which came right after the Super Bowl last year. But uh, my friend Todd in Philadelphia found a different list from Variety. I'm going to say this list has a lot of credibility. There were maybe a couple more shows that were quite well watched. Oprah with Meghan and Harry. Remember that one? So yes, in the spirit of finding all the mistakes and saying that that might be a mistake, I shall credit Todd with Philadelphia and Variety for a more definitive list. I will also credit Jill Center for the following four words. Guitar needs more practice. Indeed it does. Where shall I find the time. Marcus Maurer wrote in to say, I just wanted to point out that the Doomsday Clock is a project of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, not the Union of Concerned Scientists. I've long had my eye on the Union of Concerned Scientists and, of course, their rival faction, the Brotherhood of Indifferent Ignoramuses. The Brotherhood of Indifferent Ignoramuses kind of have an internal tension too. They're really stupid, but they don't care. So, you know, they get along okay. I was researching the doomsday clock from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. I mean, they're concerned also, concerned enough to put together a bulletin. And the artwork came from Marta Langsdorf. She's an artist. And this is the first time, I think only time, she ever designed a magazine cover, June 1947. And she made the clock that was seven minutes to midnight to show just how close we were to nuclear annihilation. But I noticed that the hour hand was right at the 12. And a real clock, you know, I know you're a concerned and dedicated scientist, and I hate to I hate to clock explain to you, but a real clock, the hour hand would be not quite because the minute hand still has seven minutes to go. So the hour hand would be not quite at the 12, it'd be 89% there. What I'm saying is nuclear war, not a threat. How can we believe you? Now, many of you, including a man who signs himself Greg, the blind guy who still uses email, good job, was talking about the Kiev versus Kiev pronunciation debate, let us call it that. And I defer to the blind man and his thoughts on this because, you know, pronouncing things very important to someone if you can't read them. And Andrei Zelok, a Ukrainian, that's how he identifies himself. Andrei, he probably doesn't identify himself. Andrei Zelok, he probably, you know, knows how to say his surname quite fluently. Andrei Zelok, a Ukrainian, but that is his signature. Andrei Zelok, a Ukrainian, does inform me and a few of you wrote this in about the pronunciation. It's not just newfangled, oldfangled. It's not just right or wrong. It's Russian V Ukrainian. By V, I think I might mean V. Kiev, he says, Andrei Zelik says that it seems like a reasonable pronunciation for an Anglophone journalist to use. Kiev, the old fashioned Kiev, as in chicken Kiev. But in doing so, aren't we siding with the Russians? So maybe Kiev is the way to, you know, put our fist in the air and say, I'm with you, my Ukrainian brothers. 
And now in a, I guess, more serious or really owning a mistake, I did fact check Robert Malone's appearance on Joe Rogan, and I did get all my facts right, but at least one or two listeners wrote in, and some people on Twitter (laughs) said, I'll never listen to Pesca again. He got this wrong. At the time, Malone was, though getting a lot of the facts wrong and not mostly accurate in how he was describing what the CDC said on the issue of natural immunity versus vaccination, he was really mischaracterizing it. I did play a quote where the mainstream media in the form of CNBC flat out said that the CDC does say that natural immunity offers more protection than vaccines. However, The conversation took place in December. That CDC pronouncement happened in January. So if I was hoisting Malone on a petard, it was a petard out of time. Uh, what, What is the truth is that the CDC all along said that natural immunity is not as preferable as vaccination because I think you, my just listeners, can fill in the blanks or figure the sentence out how it ends. Why might natural immunity not be as preferable? Because you got to get COVID to get the natural immunity. But yes, the immunity does give more protection than just the vaccine. Both together give a lot more protection than either one. All right, now we get to the lobster. What is a lobster, you ask? A lobster is an award that we give to the best listener, the best Facebook poster, Twitterer. I read Twitter all the time emailer, someone who goes to MikePesca.com, sends us a correction or comment in the Antwentig section. And the way we got to the name Lobstar was years ago, my first producer and Andrea and I were thinking of an award and she said, well, look at this. Red Lobster has an award they call the Lobstar. And I said, oh, that's great. They have the Lobstar. Why don't we have the Lobstar? And so the Lobstar, we're just riffing. There were no wrong answers. So who do I give the lobster to? Well, it's hard because in a normal time period of three weeks, many people might distinguish themselves as excellent listeners. In a period of coming on a year now, thousands of you chimed in, tweeted, sent a letter to me or my former employers, a letter, maybe a telegram, I don't know, it was by horseback, got in touch with me told me how much you cared, bucked up my spirits, offered me encouragement, convinced me that we have to, we have to keep at this. We have to try doing this. So to pick just one lobster, and I think of certain people who were there tweeting all the time and telling everyone they could about what they thought was the injustice or just their sadness that I was off the air. I think of Peter Gaska, Joe Positive, Bob Bethard, Ray Liu, Harriet Swatman. There's a hundred others that I could put in that camp of people who did not let up telling everyone they could that they want the gist back and something went wrong. But I, I also don't want to eliminate the literally thousands of people that got in touch with me or got in touch with the world through the internet and said, can we please have the gist back? And so you have it back. And so who's the lobster? Well, to quote Llewellyn Sinclair from The Simpsons. You people out there, you're the star. But if it sounds like an abdication of actually giving an award, it's not. Because if you go to MikePesca.com and subscribe, we will get to you a lobster. We are designing the team, the design team, team 
just Peachfish Productions, were designing a beautiful lobster suitable for framing, suitable for adding to the attachment that says, you know, this, this email is uh, not to be used against me in a court of law, throw a lobster there. I do have to say that the lobster, because all lobster iconography, they're always red. But if you think about it, that means they're dead and cooked. And this enterprise right here, thanks to you, we're not cooked. We're in fact still cooking. I couldn't thank you enough. You all are the lobsters of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is in charge of crustacean husbandry for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>